From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF, and welcome back, Kelly Hartlob, filling in for Heather Knight. We miss you, Heather Knight. We look forward to you being back. Yeah, Heather Knight has been off. She's coming back soon. I've been texting with her. Um, We've got plans. She'll be back on the podcast soon. But thank you so much for filling in. Um, You are my wife, and (laughs) it is Indie uh, Bookstore Tribute Month. And I wanted to ask you, if you had to pick a Hartlob family author MVP, where would it start? The first person who comes to mind, and and there are quite a few, but Mo Willems definitely uh, deserves, um, er, you know, early and often mention. His books have been beloved in our house for years. Uh, Raina Telgemeier is another MVP. Yeah, Raina Telgemeier. I think um, our younger son, Milo, I think I've bought Smile two or three or four times. I mean, been red to dog ears and then i think at one point he had um one copy of sisters at his school and one here so he could read it in both places yes yes I, i've seen copies of it at, um, at my school on my desk i've seen it when i change his sheets tucked you know tucked between his mattress and the wall i mean he, he, yes he's read those books uh, very well yeah lucy cousins Lucy Cousins, hooray for fish, was our first favorite and our and an enduring favorite around here. Yeah, if you have a baby at the Chronicle and uh, I get you a gift, it is going to be hooray for fish. And I that, love that book. that's a big honor. We still refer to our kids as gripey fish when they're having a bad day. Yeah, so hooray for fish. Um, give me a couple others. Jason Reynolds is one I'd like to mention. Um, he's a really wonderful young adult author, but he also has some books meant for more for tweens. And um, Theo kind of poured through some of his books. Um, Stefan Pastis. Yeah, Stefan Pastis. Our guest today uh, on the Mount Rushmore of authors whose books are scattered around our house. Uh, he draws the Pearls Before Swine comic, which is in the Chronicle, has been since I think the early 2000s. And the Timmy Failure books, that's a little bit more recent. Timmy Failure was also a movie. It was one of the early offerings on Disney Plus this year. That's awesome, because he's also a local guy, right? Yeah, Stefan Pastis and Guy Fieri, I think, are the two premier Santa Rosa (laughs) celebrities. Um, Stefan's uh, been living in Santa Rosa throughout his career. Uh, I've been trying to get him on the podcast since the podcast started. We've come close a few times. He's a North Bay guy. Before COVID, I always wanted to get him in the Chronicle and the archive because he's a big Charles Schultz fan and we have a big Charles Schultz file and it'd be fun to look through it with him. I remember you trying to line this up um, and I remember you interviewing him um, many years back at this point. You really liked him uh, when you first met him for a story you wrote. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we hit it off. We always kind of before and after the interview talk a lot about journalism And he's actually written a couple of strips lately that pay tribute to local newspapers, which is awesome. Um, He takes a personal challenge not to phone it in. And we're really seeing that now. A lot of my all-time favorite Pearls Before Swine have come during the pandemic. Um, We talk about that a lot. We talk about Charles Schultz. He's met him a couple of times before Charles Schultz died. The stories are fantastic. Um, They're very funny and touching. We talk in detail about the Timmy Failure movie, how the director of Spotlight, 
ended up adapting his illustrated books, and we pay tribute to local bookstores, including a North Bay institution. It's Indie Bookstore Tribute Month on Total SF. Such a worthy cause, such a great thing to be celebrating. I hope everybody remembers to go out and support their local bookstores. Definitely. I'm Peter Hartlob, here with Kelly Hartlob. Stefan Pastis coming up, and this is Total SF. Welcome to Total SF, Stefan Pastis. For the first time, and I can't believe it, you you are the person I have been trying to get on this podcast the longest. <laughs> well, thank you. It's fun to do it. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I want to start by saying, how are you holding up? Because I would assume, like, what you do is going to be real good for what we're going through. I mean. It, it's not good for anybody. But I also know that you travel around to coffee shops and you're like the most mobile comic strip artist that that I've met. How are you doing? Yeah, I do. I used to write the strip um, in coffee shops like uh, Healdsburg and uh, Calistoga and here in Santa Rosa. Uh, and I would write from like 8 a.m. to noon. Mm-hmm. And so and then I would come back here to my studio and I would draw them. So Obviously, the cafes have gone by the wayside, so now I just come to my studio, which is just this condo here in Santa Rosa, and I write in the morning, and then I draw in the afternoon, and I do it pretty much six days a week. So, um, all in all, my schedule um, is pretty much the same. I mean, it's kind of like cartoonists have sort of been joking, I think, with each other that we are uniquely suited for this because we've... I mean, our life is being isolated. Mm-hmm. We really just live in our head, and then we draw alone and rarely see anyone <laughs> or each other. So, um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. We're not the most social bunch. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, but also I would think there's some challenges too. I think everybody thinks that you like write the strip the day before we see it. And then it appears the next day in the paper, or, or uh, I, I read you on Twitter a lot now. Um, right. It's not that way, though. You, you Last time I talked to you, you had like a four or five month lead time. And yeah, I'm reading your yeah. strips, and there are, you know, <laughs> a lot with masks and what's going on yeah, right now. What, right, what's right. that tightrope walk like? Yeah, so you have to, you're required by your syndicate. So if you're in a newspaper, it means that you have a relationship with the syndicate, and the syndicate distributes you to newspapers for people who don't know the comic strip business. But the syndicate requires you to be six weeks ahead on the Sundays, I think four weeks ahead on the dailies, being Monday through Saturday. Um, I'm nine months and change ahead, so Mm. I'm really ahead. But when the COVID thing hit, it was really the only time in my career, um, 20 years, where you knew for a fact that everybody, not just in the country, but in the world, was experiencing the same thing at the same time. So normally what you're doing is you're talking about things that relate to you, and then hopefully that relates to a certain subset of the population. Uh, But now it relates to everybody. Mm -hmm. So there was no way I couldn't talk about it. So I had already submitted all of my strips for March, April, May, June, sometime last year. So what I did was I just called the syndicate and I said, I'm going to be substituting in strips 
every week. I'll go on the server, I'll take the old ones off, and I'll put on the new ones. So um, I said, just give me the shortest lead time you can. Because what I think people don't understand is, if I want to do a strip today, the very soonest I could get it in, very soonest, is about two and a half weeks from now. Mm -hmm. So I started to do that. But here was the trick with COVID. Um, you didn't know where the story would be in that many weeks. When this started out in March, you didn't know, like, how bad is this going to be? Or, conversely, does it go away? We didn't know anything. So it makes you thread this needle of, on the one hand, being relevant. But on the other hand, you're got, you've got to guess what will be relevant in that time frame. And that's really a trick. Like, that is really a trick. So um, I've done the best I can, and I've just been subbing them in as we go. Uh, but, yes, that's unique. Every week I substitute strips <laughs> in. So, yeah, it's crazy. Well, I have to think not just, um, you know, the topics, you know, whether the the – the numbers go up and down and what's happening in politics, but also the mood. And right. what I've, it's almost like I imagine it, but I feel like when I'm down the lowest, that's where you come out with that strip. And you've always done this to a degree, but you come out with that strip that is a little bit more emotional. Um, right. It sort of right. takes that right turn at the end and there's not a punchline. There's a, right. you know, message to the reader. Are you doing a little bit more of that? Are you thinking about um, your role, not just as someone to entertain, but someone to sort of boost us in a different yeah. way? I've never felt that before. Like I, I do, it's almost like a responsibility. Like I can, you know, you can feel like how everyone is. Everybody is on edge and you're scared and, and, and not knowing when this will end is a huge stressor on yeah. all of us. And I do, you know, I've had characters in the public eye for 20 years and they do have a unique ability to reach people, particularly if you don't hit the sad or non-funny ones too much. Like if you just surprise people with them, um, they have more impact that way. But I do feel that responsibility because people are down and, and, and you don't want to add to that. So Pig is the character Pig in the strip has really come to the forefront as this model of just uh, stupid optimism, <laughs> like yeah. optimism without reason. And um, yeah, it's funny. I've never felt that responsibility before, so to speak. Like I've never felt that that was my job, but um, it's unmistakable now. Like you, you have to, you have to do it. Like it's just, it's in the zeitgeist. <laughs> like everyone's feeling the same thing. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, Pig, the obliviousness is just something that we all need right now. I mean, I, I want to yeah. be a little bit more oblivious right now because it's like, you know, write yeah. it out, retain your faith in humanity, and then <laughs> yeah. and then we come out on the other side. That is really, that's really true. Yeah, it's and that this is, these are the days where, um, like, people ask me since I've done it for 20 years, like, how much longer would you want to do it? I don't want to stop doing it. Um, I, I love that ability to comment on what's going on. I love that ability to reach people. And if the, if the strip stopped, the characters would stop, and I would miss the characters. Yeah. It's an odd thing to say, but they become like your kids. I wouldn't want them to go <laughs> silent. Like, I, I want... I, I would, yeah, it's weird. I would feel the responsibility of them being quiet. Like, I would, I would be the cause. I remember Schultz said that. I got to meet Schultz at the end of his life yeah. a couple of times. And I remember he said, and he later said it in interviews, but he said it to me. He goes, it was right when he announced he had cancer and he was stopping. And he said something that I thought was so odd then, but I don't think is odd now. 
He said, that poor little kid, meaning Charlie Brown, he'll never get to kick the football. And, and, and he really talked of him as a third person. Not that he was a creation of him, but it was a guy out there who wouldn't be able to do it. I get that now. Like, I, I understand what that means. They have lives of their own, and it's, it's weird. Yeah, very strange. Well, now, now you've alluded to it. I'll sum up the beginning of the, your career, and then you tell me the time you met Schultz. Uh, you were a lawyer um, and uh, hated lawyer in San Francisco and absolutely hated yeah. it. Yeah, I was working um, at Sansom and Clay across the street from that fire department and uh, in an insurance defense firm for nine years, and I never much enjoyed it. So I would draw at nights when I got home. We lived in Albany, and I would draw on the weekends, and I would submit them, and yeah, everything I submitted got rejected over and over and over for years. And then I put this pig with the rat, and it just uh, took off, and more than one syndicate wanted it, yeah. and suddenly I was done being a lawyer. I mean, it was, really, uh, it was really a dream come true. I had no art training. You know, I had gone to Berkeley undergrad and then UCLA Law School. I was on the road to being a lawyer my whole life, and um, little did I know how, how much I would just hate being a lawyer. So um, this came along, and it was like, it was like a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know what I remember uh, so distinctly? I remember the last moment I was a lawyer because <laughs> of the reaction. Uh, th th this was it. It was a deposition where you ask people questions under oath in a small room in an office. Uh -huh. And it was in San Diego. And there were more than one party to the lawsuits. There were a lot of lawyers in the room. And they all knew this was my last day. And we had been fighting all day long, like really fighting. It was bad. And when it was over, all of their moods changed. And one by one, they shook my hand. It was like they were watching one of their own escape over the wall. <laughs> and they were, like, happy for me. You know yeah. what I mean? It was like Shawshank Redemption. He, he got out. Like, it just um, – and, uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was really a cool moment. I, I love hearing this from you. And we've had, we've had this conversation uh, once or twice over the years. But I, I'm a law school dropout. And I, oh, I, didn't I did. Know that. A, I forgot. Yeah, I did a full year at King Hall and UC Davis, and <laughs> yeah. and I missed journalism. I didn't want to go in. I was kind of, you know, my family wanted me to go, and and uh, every time I hear that, I'm just like, oh God, I dodged a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, I mean, some people like being a lawyer, but I'm I'm not one of them. Well, I I remember. I think you told me it was. Uh, uh, I'm gonna get the uh, artist's name wrong so i'm not even going to try but i think it was get fuzzy you went to someone just to teach you how to block in shades of gray i mean you you had to learn the basics kind of yeah, on the I had fly. To, it was you have a good memory it was like darby conley who, who does get fuzzy i had to ask him because if you look at a a daily comic strip you see the dot shading yeah. you know, i call it like lichtenstein's paintings those dots yeah and i didn't know how to do it i didn't know that you use photoshop i yeah. didn't know how to use photoshop I still literally know less than a half of a percent of what Photoshop can do. I only know exactly <laughs> what is needed to produce the daily strip and then color the Sundays. That is all I know. So, um, yeah, but, you know, it just what it came down to. And I get all these questions about people who still want to do a comic strip, all these technical questions. And I always say the same thing. It, it all comes down to if you could be funny. If you could be funny and all you had handy was a grocery bag, a paper grocery bag and a crayon, and you sent that in, if those were funny, the syndicate would work out all the rest. Yeah. It all comes down to the ability to be funny in three panels, which is harder than you would think because you've got to do it 365 days 
a year. That is that takes work. But if you got that, the rest you'll figure out. So where'd you meet Schultz, or where were you in your career where you met Schultz? I know you met him at the ice rink. Yeah, I met him in the ice rink when I was in my sixth year of being, no, third year of being a lawyer, 96. And I knew that he had uh, coffee every day uh, at the same place, which is by his ice arena here in Santa Rosa. And my wife, Stacy was from Santa Rosa originally, so she told me where to go. So I went in, and I basically <laughs> was a stalker, and I just waited for him to finish his breakfast. And when he did, I walked up to his table, and I said, uh, Mr. Schultz, hi, my name is Stefan Pastis, and I'm an attorney. <laughs> and when I, said, <laughs> when I said I'm an attorney, he thought he was being served with a subpoena. <laughs> so his face, his face went white, like it was the worst intro ever. And then I go, oh, no, no, I draw too, I draw. And he goes, did you bring your stuff? And I was like, actually, I do have it in the car. He goes, let me see it. And man, talk about intimidating. So I went to the car, I brought, got my comic strips, I showed them to Schultz, he gave me these tips. We took a picture in front of the fireplace in the ice arena, and um, it was just a dream come true. It was so weird, it was crazy. Um, and then the, the crazy part was, right before he died, um, I signed with his syndicate, United Features, mm -hmm. and his editor was my editor. So she took me up to see him. This is just weeks before he died. And so I got to watch uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, um, with him. I sat, it was me and him. And uh, it was incredible. Like, it was one of those moments in life where you kind of go like, how did I get here? Yeah. And he really cried. He really, really cried. Some people have said that it was because he had had so many strokes at the end. But um, the people were cheering um, that they were playing that song, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and the people were cheering. And he turned to me and he said, you do that, you do that for the next 50 years, which is an amazing thing to say, because he didn't, it, I don't, that's not on the quality of my strip, he hadn't seen it, it was just another cartoonist. And then when he said it, he, he could not stop crying. Mm -hmm. And so I just put my arm around him, um, like you would anybody, I suppose, in that situation. And um, it was just such an intense crazy moment for a guy just starting in the business to see and hear. I remember um, telling me, I think the first time that we met, and you were pretty early in your career, you were almost like scared, I don't want to go back to being a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, that was driving you, and I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to not write a good strip. I don't want to let down at all because I've got that chasing me. Do you still feel that or are you motivated by other things now? Because I, oh. I think your work is constantly, you know, I look at it and I'll say this is the best it's been. And I'm wondering what's chasing you now. Well, thank you. Okay, so I can prove this one too. This is crazy because <laughs> this happened just two weeks ago. I have had a dream periodically, but I just had it again two weeks ago. And it is always the same dream. This is the dream. I am going back through my law firm. All the, peop all the people are still there. We have a good time. I see them again. How you doing? How's everything been? And it goes well. And then one of the partners comes up to uh -huh. me and says, we do not have your timesheets. And then I say, for what period? And he goes, the whole period. And I go, the, the 19 years? And they go, yeah, we don't have anything from you. And then I go to my office and I try to figure out my timesheets. Like, I haven't billed anything. I haven't been working. And it is this nightmarish feeling. It's really a nightmare. And then I wake up and the reality hits me. I don't have to bill. I'm not at the firm. I don't have to do any of that. And then I feel okay. But that tells me that fear is still very present in me. 
19, 20 years later, it is still in me. Isn't that wild? Yeah, I mean, but is that a bad thing or a good thing? Because I there's an edge to you. I, it shows up in your strip from time to time. Um, your your whole thing with Family Circus, I, I feel like it's a love-hate. I feel like there's a little <laughs> bit of homage in there, but there was a recent one that was very funny. I'll let people yeah. discover it. Uh, uh, yeah. It's on your Twitter feed. Um, yeah. But... Um, is it a good thing having that anxiety yeah. dream and that? Yeah, it's a fire at my heels. Uh, that's it's a great. It's a couple things. One, cartoonists are pretty lazy on the whole, mm-hmm. and they whine about their deadlines and everything. I knew real deadlines. I, I knew deadlines that if they got missed, someone got sued or someone lost millions of dollars. Those uh-huh. are deadlines. So these deadlines of the comic strip. The reason I'm so diligent about it is it was disciplined into me from ten years. First off. Secondly, I appreciate what I'm able, what I, what I do now. Like I appreciate it in a way, only someone who has had a real job that was hard and bad for a decade would appreciate. Yeah. If I hadn't done that, I would not feel the way I do. When I get up in the morning and I come here to the studio and I have my coffee on, coffee on the patio, I know I'm lucky. I know the alternative. I know what it's like to go to an office and have some partner who hates you. So it's that too. And then third, as you can tell from my nightmare, I do still have that. I do still have that doom and gloom feeling that it can all collapse. And so it makes me um, try harder. Yeah. It's, it's strange. But yeah, yeah. So that's what, it, that's what it's done for me. Um, so in that way, it's been valuable. Like it's, you know, although I wish I could have those 10 years back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. Um, wanted to ask about, uh, Timmy failure. And, um, I, I don't think I've spoken to you since the books hit it big, but then you basically started Disney plus with the Mandalorian. Yeah. How did all that start? It started, this is such a crazy story. The book was simply cause, um, a book agent who was a fan of the comic called and said, would you ever like trying to do a kid's book? So I said, all right. So I came up with this detective, boy detective and his polar bear and the boy's name is timmy failure and the series took off and there's been eight volumes and it's translated a number of languages so very lucky but the movie part was really wild the movie part was that the agent sent it to these directors and this director tom mccarthy who hadn't done spotlight yet but he co-wrote up the pixar movie and uh, co-wrote up in the station uh, agent and station agent a lot of of really good yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a big film guy. I forgot. Yeah. yeah. So, so, anyways, um, I met him and uh, we met in New York and we got along like gangbusters. And he liked the character and he loved the book. And so he wanted to write it and try to turn it into a movie. And then that's when I threw a wrench into everything and I said, I'd like to write it with you. Now, this is a guy <laughs> who, you know, has two Academy Awards uh, and he. There was a good solid three seconds of true silence. Yeah. And then he said, okay, what what do you know about film writing? And I go, oh, I've read all those books you're supposed to read. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the screenwriting ones. And he goes, no, but have you done it? I go, no. no." He goes, all right, all right. (laughs) So I thought, oh, my God, I've screwed the whole deal over. So he started writing it. He started writing Act 1. And the first scene of Act 2, he said, do you want to take a shot? So I said, yeah. 
I'll do it. It's like the coach saying, you want to get up to bat? So I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I guess I did well because that day started a process of a year and a half of the two of us talking every day. And that screenplay is both of ours. Um, so here's this guy who's I basically got a year and a half of school for, you know, for free yeah. from this director. And not only that, but when shooting started, when pre-production started up in Vancouver, um, he said, I put money in the budget for you to be there. And I said, for how much of the time? And he said, the entire time. That's seven months. And so I was like, oh, my God. All right. You mean I get to see everything shot? He goes, you're going to work every day. And I go, oh, great. So we would go. We would write in the morning. We'd go to set. We'd write at night when we were done, constantly changing stuff. Do it again the next day, six days a week. And it was intense. It was it was. Let me tell you this. There is nothing like the feeling, I wish every writer could have this, mm -hmm. of going to a movie set one day and seeing 200 people run around. They built, their, they built literally, built a house. And then a stunt car driver drove this car 40 miles an hour up into the air to get it lodged in the side of the house. And all I'm thinking is, the only reason any of this is happening is because once on my computer, I type that this <laughs> Cadillac goes into the side of a house. If that doesn't blow your mind, you know, I don't know what does. And then when we had the premiere at Sundance, um, that, was, that was intense. And then we got to go to Hollywood and have the premiere, you know, like the big bill, the giant uh, El Capitan Theater. Uh -huh. It was like, what an intense... I mean, I, I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I thought, too, I was really pleasantly surprised because one thing that I like about your writing is there's a moodiness to it and a melancholy that, that I, reminds me of Schultz. And right. generally, yeah. I review all these movies. I mean, there was a 15-year period where I was doing, you know, every Diary of a Wimpy Kid and Alvin and the Chipmunks. And generally, oh, right. generally those properties steer more toward uh, the kind of physical comedy of it. And yeah. I felt like this went right in squarely into the direction of what you do, which is there's some melancholy. There's, you know, this boy, yeah. there's some sadness there. And then yeah. um, there's also some humanity there too. And, and yeah. it seems like that, because I don't see it that often, I think that's got to have a little bit more of a degree of difficulty. Yeah, I think it's hard because it's that two-track thing. A kid has to be able to watch it and just have fun with a boy and his polar bear walking around Portland. Yeah. But if an adult watches it, you see that that polar bear is the stand-in for a father he's never had. And then it's a little more heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, for a kid, maybe they don't care about that, so you need to keep the fun on the top level, and then you need to keep the, that heart line down below. And that that can be, that can be hard, but... Um, yeah, we, we, I mean, it was such a wonderful ex learning experience, and um, it's just great. I'm so appreciative I got to do it. Yeah. Like, it was, uh, not everybody gets that. I'll tell you something that almost no writer gets, like, truly. You could pull writers on this. Mm -hmm. To be involved in the making of the movie, first off, in any capacity, mm -hmm. much less to co-write the movie, and to be on set every day, literally working with all the departments. There, there, I'll tell you one last anecdote, then I'll stop yeah. at this. But it, this, is, this is the level. On one of the first days on the set, the guys in charge of um, props 
uh, oh no, these are the guys in charge of the cars, um, came up to me and said, we have a scene with an 18-wheeler. It's shipping the kids from one school to another. Um, But the the truck turns, and there's no writing on the side of the truck. So we think the name of the school should be there. And I go, oh, great, yeah. And they go, so do you want to come up with it? So I know enough to say, well, I'm not the director. I mean, ask Tom, ask the director. And he goes, no, he said to come to you. And I said, oh, all right, well, give me 15 minutes. So I went to my office in Vancouver. I came up with the name, um, and I gave it to him. So when I go to set the next day, there are two 18-wheelers that someone has stayed up all night painting the side of. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh. Like, that's real – that's responsibility. Like, it's it's not just a little comic strip. Like, that's that's real things. You've got to be on your game. So – yeah, so it's just wonderful. What a cool experience. Well, I want to I want to talk a little bit about uh, indie bookstores, and we can get movie theaters in there too. But uh, first, yeah. I want to I got my I got your uh, this is an October one of your comics I have oh, framed no on my desk. Um, oh, is that the if you're not what's that last line? If you're not if you're not paying for journalism, you're paying for not having journalism. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a <laughs> uh, I'll put it on my Twitter instead of reading it. Re- <laughs> reading your comic doesn't do it justice. But um, uh, you had another one in July too. You've done this a few times yeah. where you've shouted out local journalism. Uh, I notice it. I mean. There's a little bit of a buzz around the newsroom. Uh, I, yeah, I'm wondering what, what kind of motivated you to do that, and 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 how much you're thinking about that right now. Yeah, it's really. Um, I, I guess I'm in a unique position because I've I've been in a lot of newsrooms on these book tours. I tend to visit the newspaper. Sometimes I would do events in conjunction with the newspaper. Yeah, and they're great people, and I see what has happened to them and their offices in the last ten years. Um, and I know that if you do not have a local paper, uh, you are going to be in trouble. And here in Santa Rosa, where I live, um, we learned that during the fires in 2017 because I wasn't even in the country. And the Press Democrat, our paper, was my sole lifeline to know exactly where that fire was. I couldn't get it from CNN. I couldn't get it from the local news stations. I only got it from the PD. So not to be too alarmist, but truly – if 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 you ever face something like we face then you you realize how critical that local news is is your school still standing you would think you could learn these things yourselves you can't the areas get cut off you can't even drive in there is the school is my grandmother's house still there is the and and the paper becomes critical um so i want every town to have good coverage in their local paper and so i do whatever i can in the strip to promote that um, from time to time, um, you know, and especially now with all the dumb attacks on journalism, it's yeah. it's ridiculous. These guys are putting their lives on the line in many cases to deliver you these stories, doing the best they can do, often for very little money. Uh, just this love of this, you know, finding the truth and the story, and um, so my heart is just with them, you know, yeah. and. So I want to do as much as I can, and I want them to know through the strip that I care. And, um, uh, yeah, that's basically it. Well, it's appreciated. I I have this framed on my desk here. Uh, It's you, (laughs) and I have a framed photo of Hunter Pence, too. No, I know, and and that's why I encourage people. It's almost uh, like a civic obligation, if you ask me. You should be paying for journalism, and hopefully 
the first thing you pay for is your local journalism. I'll tell you a crazy stat. You might already know this one, but for people listening, this is a true stat. Mm -hmm. In a city without a newspaper, the bonds that the city takes out, they have higher interest rates. The reason is because the bondholders don't trust the city to be run as well without a newspaper watching it. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's, that is amazing, and, and that should be in all of our ads because the, yep. the teachers always, you know, when there's a bond, hey, property values. I mean, here's what's right. in it for you, even if you don't want to, you know, help your community and your teachers and your kids. Uh, yeah. Subscribe yeah, to the paper for you know, <laughs> no. selfish reasons, if nothing else. <laughs> totally. Cool. Well, why don't yeah. I just finish with a little bit about independent bookstores and just start with... Um... So here where it is, where I would go all the time, and man, am I missing it now. Um, we have a little mini chain up here called Copperfield, oh, yeah. which you know. Oh, yeah, know it well. And, yeah. yeah, and I I guess I didn't realize how much I missed this one feature. It sounds dumb, but I would often write the strip in Petaluma, and they have one on Kentucky there, uh, uh, Copperfields. And I would go in when I was done writing and I would browse around. But the table I would gravitate to is um, their recommendations from staff. Like everybody on the staff would have a book. And I, I didn't realize the degree. I really rely on that. So now when I shop, it's like, oh, man, I miss that table. Like that was key to me. So one of the things I've always tried to do with Copperfields is – I tell them when there's a new Pearls book or Timmy book to just buy a bunch of them. And I will come in when I'm done writing and I'll sign all 200. And then I just go online on Facebook or Twitter and I tell people, hey, I just signed 200 and I drew in every single one of them. And then Copperfields gets all of those sales. So it's a great kind of boost that I can do for them. Mm -hmm. But um, – yeah, it means a lot to me. That That's another thing. If you're not supporting that local bookstore, you will rue the day when that bookstore closes. I mean, those people care about the community, and they're, they're another essential part. So uh, what I tell people is, you know, I know Amazon's convenient. I buy from it, too. I get it. But every now and then, buy, instead of buying from Amazon, call the bookstore with whatever book you want. If they don't have it, they'll order it. I think that's something people don't realize your local bookstore will do. They don't realize and, it. And yeah. I think the whole pre-order um, mentality is, well, you've got to do the pre-orders on Amazon. Like, they won't count if you do it at the bookstore. But And right. I thought that way, too. I wasn't straightened out until, I think, two years ago, where I finally yeah. threw it out on Twitter. And people, hey, authors, I want to buy your books. I don't want to buy them on Amazon. Right. And they're like, pre-order at your bookstore. They'll do it. I'm like, bookstores can do that? Because I, I just yeah. always thought they were in this kind of Fred Flintstone era where, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I didn't notice that they had computers and not an abacus when I was buying a book. But Right. Um, right. I, I hope that I've noticed that the messaging has gotten so much better from the bookstores. And they're great places. You know, when you when you tour books, you tend to I think most of us go to the indies. And so I've got to see a good chunk of the country. And there are so many great places. I mean, Tattered Cover is the Indian Denver, which is wonderful and Changing Hands and Third Place Books and Powell's in, in Portland. They're great places that have a lot of character and you can just browse and get help. And it's it's really a, a, a wonderful thing. So I'm really preaching, by the way, local paper, local bookstore. I love it. I love it. Um, I just hope they're around. I mean, I, I think yeah, we're going to come too. out of this and realize that a lot of things are gone. 
and I'm worried about uh, bookstores. I'm really worried yeah. about movie theaters. We have so many great movie theaters here that were thriving, and yeah. you know, yep. I, Who knows now? Yeah, yeah, it's scary. Well, I, I appreciate your time. I I want to uh, I want to uh, end on a uh, somewhat somewhat uh, happy note. What are you optimistic about these days, if anything? You seem I like a generally fairly optimistic I, yeah. person. Your, your strips aren't always optimistic. <laughs> I know. I try to see like the the good and whatever. So one of the things I'm appreciating now is my kids are 18 and 22. And I feel like when they were younger, uh, I didn't give them as much time as I could have. I was so head down doing the strip, not wanting to ever have to go back to being a lawyer. And I feel like I missed too much. And this last year... I feel like I've got to grab them back for a year. And so and so every every day when I come home, I I take as much of their time as they'll let me have, even if it's five minutes, to just talk to them and hug them and appreciate their being there. And that is in a in a strange way has been sort of a gift of these last uh five months. Mm-hmm. Um so um I don't know. I, I like that. I try to see the the good part of stuff and as bad as COVID has been, you also see the, the good in people. I mean, you see all the selfless acts and the, um, yeah, if you look for it, it's there. The problem is we all get caught up in the national news and our, and our crazy president and all the stuff that's going on. But there is good there and we have rallied, you know, for each other. And I think of all those people, you know, the, the one thing that amazes me in this, and I'm sure you're the same, is how in the world you can be a doctor or a nurse and, and be on your feet for those 18 hours seeing what you do. I mean, it's, it is incredible. They, they have put their lives on the line for us. I mean, that, that is, what an incredible thing. You I, I'm know? starting to feel like, too, the grocery store workers, the, you know, oh, I, I, yeah. I think we're going to walk out of this with a newfound appreciation for a lot of people that we, that were maybe invisible to us. And I think you, 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 said something earlier, civic act, you know, I I think there are going to be certain things, including going to an indie instead of saving a little bit of money and going to a big chain or using Amazon, I think, um, you know, showing appreciation towards some people that I think were kind of marginalized. um, Yeah, civic act, I think that's something that's going to come out of this. And if you look at history, you know, 1906, I've dug through the archive. That's what happened after the earthquake. It happened after oh. World War II. And, you know, so I, I, I'm just hopeful okay. it's going to be really rough. And then we're going to see the good in people. And, you know, hopefully it'll be that much more apparent because, you know, a lot of the negativity that's going on right now will, will, will be over with. Well, what do you what do you got? What do you got coming up? And uh, if I go to Copperfields right now, what do you have signed? Uh, nothing right now because I couldn't <laughs> do it because of COVID. But um, I have a series on a little squirrel. It's a new, it's like what? a graphic novel. It's a brand new series. Yeah, so I'm finishing the revisions now. In fact, uh, it's on the wall behind me. They can't see that, yeah. but in the room I'm in, I've put up all the pages that I've been doing. And then um, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I'm finishing a sequel for Timmy. So Timmy 2, Disney hired me to do the sequel, so I'm finishing the script. But when production will ever start again, yeah. I don't know. So, um, so yeah, I'm definitely staying, staying, uh, staying busy. And 
and uh, hoping to one day tour again and travel and do all that fun stuff like everybody else, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it's great. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, I'm sorry it took this long. I knew it was going to be good, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, just really glad we got together. For sure. Thank you for having me. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Kelly Hartlob and Stefan Pastis. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 